Hello and welcome to the Spine and Nerve podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hovez. And I'm Dr. Raman Garai. And today we're going to be talking about joint pain. I'm going to kind of try to generalize this a little bit. Uh, we'll probably use the knee as our main uh, point of reference just because it is such a common joint that's injured. But a lot of the uh, theory can actually be used for shoulders and hips as well. Right? And so we know, generally speaking, when we're talking about joint pains, um, the first thing we always want to figure out, patient comes in saying, okay, I have knee pain. You know, one of the first things we always kind of want to figure out is if it's acute or chronic, right? If there's a, a, an acute injury or if it's something that's just kind of slowly began worse, began worse, and has finally gotten to the point that they're, you know, presenting to uh, a healthcare provider to try to figure out what's going on, right? And so, Dr. Gray, what are the main reasons why we would want to care about something, whether it's acute versus this kind of slowly progressive process? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the big implication is whether something's um, acute or chronic would be, it does help, uh, it does change the management. Um, if you're thinking, if there's an injury and something's acute, um, uh, you're looking at things like broken bones, you want to get uh, initial imaging to try to rule those types of things out. And chronic, you're thinking more degenerative, um, and we'll kind of talk about what that really means, arthritis and what that means. Uh, and, and that kind of changes the treatment uh, plan. So let's define what acute versus chronic is. I think typically, uh, chronic is defined by anything that's over about three months, would you agree? Yep. yep. So three months um, uh, is chronic, and what you want to describe as acute or subacute is a little bit up for a debate, but it's on the order of, of weeks. So, you know, let's say um, we get a, a young patient uh, in the 20s or 30s comes in with an acute injury and they have some type of uh, mechanical injury. Um, let's say they were snowboarding and they, and they pounded their knee into the ground. All right, that's an acute injury. It happened about, let's say, three days ago or so. Um, am I going to go and uh, immediately put a steroid injection into their um you know, no, I, I need imaging. I want to make sure there's there's no uh, fracture in there. I want to do a physical exam, make sure there's no laxity, because uh, then you're worried about uh, ligaments being torn, tendons, something along those lines. Um, and uh, you may need an MRI for something like that. Um, now, let's say someone comes in that's uh, 70 years old, okay? And they come in with a history of, uh, well, doc, you know, I've had this pain for about a couple years now. I didn't really have an accident to cause it. Um, it's slowly gotten worse. Gosh, my pain's really worse in the morning. It gets a little bit better, but then uh, throughout the day as I move it along, get it lubricated, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, uh, it's really back down to where it was in the morning, really bad. That sounds like a classic arthritic knee. Um, and that changes the management. Now I'm not thinking uh, a fractured bone. I'm not thinking um, a torn ligament. Yeah, okay, maybe you have some degenerative uh, cartilage, uh, but that's different from a hyperacute injury. And so the treatment, the management changes because now I'm thinking, okay, well, this looks like it's probably an arthritic knee. Um, and I need to figure out what the patient's tried or uh, not tried. And maybe I'm looking into uh, something to treat rather than cure, um, which is... Um, uh, which really is different from, again, that first example of where you can maybe cure. Yeah. If there's a broken bone in there you can, and, or a, a torn ligament, you can actually um, uh, cure those things. Whereas treatment is more so, you know, listen, we can't reverse the signs of aging and arthritis, but we can treat the symptoms to make them better. That's right, yeah. You know, I think one of the things that always comes up, you know, very big in our training, and anytime that you're talking to, like, a sports medicine doctor, uh, they're always going to talk about, okay, are there mechanical <laughs> symptoms, right? You know, yep. Especially for, you know, maybe somebody in between. I think those two examples paint the big, a nice dichotomous picture of, like, the extremes of both examples, right? But you say you get the 40-year-old weekend warrior, right? Go, does yep. 5Ks every once in a while, rides his bike. Yeah, us, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, and then knee kind of acts up a little bit, um, 
you know, and then especially after, you know, you maybe ran that, ran a 10K instead of a 5K and all of a sudden knees swelled up, bothering you pretty bad, Mm. you know, and then so we really kind of start honing in on, you know, what we like to call mechanical symptoms, right? Or catching, clicking, clunking, Mm. whether Mm. it feels Mm. like the joint gets stuck in any particular uh, location, just because, you know, once again, different things to be able to guide treatment. I mean, thankfully, I think in a 2019 world, most people that present with those types of symptoms are probably going to end up with imaging, right? We, mm-hmm. we, imaging is, you know, easy, uh, relatively affordable at Big this go-to. point. Yeah. Um, and so definitely helpful for a lot of things, you know, whether it's uh, x-ray as, as a basis or MRI or even musculoskeletal ultrasound, which has obviously made significant inroads uh, into being able to, you know, give information mm-hmm. to patients in a very quick manner without having to, you know, sit in an MRI tube for 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, those mechanical symptoms, I think, are one of the things that, we really do have to, you know, tease out from a patient and, and, and think about because, like you said, that definitely think changes the way that we're we're kind of thinking about what those next steps are. Right, exactly. Right. I mean, my definition of mechanical is um, something when, um, and I'll ask you your definition, but essentially mechanical again to define it would be something uh, a pain um, that's uh, instigated by movement or or use of a, a joint or um, with pressure with use, um, and and involves the joint the ligament and you think it kind of points to a joint ligament some type of soft tissue issue on that on that end how would you define it yeah yeah, absolutely i agree you know and of course you know i think once you start getting a little bit more of whether or not there's any changes in the range of motion of that joint because Mm -hmm. of that that pain or because of whatever catching clicking clunking kind of is going Mm -hmm. on Mm -hmm. you know thinking of the knee uh, as a perfect example right somebody comes in and you know they have this severe pain that you know they feel if they just kind of work their knee out a little bit they can actually stretch it past that point and it Mm -hmm. kind of releases Mm -hmm. you know you're probably thinking a little bit more about you know meniscal tear or something along those lines as opposed to just a more degenerative sure. type, of, type of a process. Exactly right. Yeah, and there's your definition of mechanical something, uh, physically or organically. There, um, yeah, and that kind of is a nice segue into treatment options. If you want to move on to that, yeah. Um, you know, here's I, I I do broad stroke. Um, when I sit down with my patients, I do broad stroke um, um, treatment options, and I I just define it as such. I say, listen, in in medicine, in general, we go conservative to more invasive. Um, and so I split into three broad strokes. I'd say, listen, there's conservative uh, measures, and then there's injections, and then there's surgery. At least that for our field here in, in PM&R and in the interventional uh, world, that's what the the options are. And so, what what does conservative measures mean? Um, here's what that means: it's it's physical therapy, uh, it's the acupuncture, it's massage, it's chiropractic, it's the stuff you see on TV, it's the topical creams, the patches, the oral medication, anti-inflammatories, Tylenol. Um, it's anything that's really, that doesn't break your skin, doesn't go in, and that's considered um, invasive in my mind. And I, I would say, listen, that's the first step. You always start to stay as least invasive um, as possible, or as little invasive as possible. And because sometimes that does a trick and, and you can get away with not, um, you could, by limiting your liability or your exposure um, to, to risks for the patient and yourself. When that doesn't help, the next step up would be injections. Um, and, you know, for the last, oh gosh, I don't know, some, you know, several decades, the injection options have been centered around steroid. Uh, commonly people say, oh, it's a cortisone shot. Well, what was cortisone? You know, we haven't used it, you know, cortisone in the medical field for I, I don't know how many years, but yeah. uh, I don't even remember using it ever. ever. Uh, and so, but the point is that cortisone is a steroid in, in general and an anti-inflammatory steroid. The, the ones we use, the dexamethasone, canalog, dipamethasone, 
in, in general, we use one of those. And um, that's what the injection world has been based around, more or less, mixed in with a little bit of lidocaine, which is um, the same stuff the medicine that uh, the dentist uses when you go to um, have a procedure. So it's a, a mixture of those two, usually, or one or the other. Uh, and that's your injection option. The third option would be surgery, which is really invasive, and that's something you try to reserve um, as a last-ditch effort. And if you've tried conservative measure, you've tried injections, and none of those have helped. Um, and so that's how I break down the broad stroke treatment plan or treatment options for patients. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add from there, but that's how I break it down. Yeah, no, I, I, think that's, I think that's completely right. right? Yeah. You can always you know, educate the patient on what's going on, let them know that their options, those physical modalities or medications that they can utilize externally, uh, and then progress on say, to injections uh, or surgery. Obviously, we are uh, non-surgical specialists. We tend to work with patients as best we can. If there's um, you know, something mechanical, getting them appropriately over to, to a, a surgeon if it's necessary, right? Somebody who's consistently catching right. a, a torn meniscus or something along those lines, right. you know, that's something that you know not necessarily going to most of the time going to be able to, to work around. Um, but, uh, you know, if there is anything that we can do to be able to prevent them from that point, that's going to be our goal. Like I said, steroids have, have been the standard of care uh, for a long time. And for the, for the most part, they do a fair job. Um, you know, I think the data, generally speaking, says that steroids work for joints in the three to six month range. I think most of the data is probably closer mm-hmm. to three than to six. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and some patients do quite well with it. You know, one of the challenges becomes that over time, some people stop responding to steroid. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some people that never respond to steroid uh, to begin with. Right. And then we have to get into the realm of thinking about longevity for a patient, mm-hmm. right? Obviously, mm-hmm. we, you know, a 40-year-old uh, guy, weekend warrior that's already starting to have some, some knee pain, if we're thinking about getting him to the point that his you know, knee is going to be replaced, which most people would say is about 60, uh, is what most, uh, I believe, orthopedic surgeons would use at, as the, that, yeah, at the that general... Lower end yeah, of acceptability, low, yeah. Exactly. And so you think, okay, well, we're going to do steroids on him for 20 years, right? And so that's when the question starts getting, well, what other options are there? You know, right. I think, you know, 15 years ago or so, we started getting into this world of hyaluronic acid, mm-hmm. uh, which was kind of the first foray into uh, what now would probably fill the void of what's called regenerative medicine. Mm -hmm. Hyaluronic Mm -hmm. acid being a medication that is meant to replace the original joint fluid mm-hmm. that's there. Some right? of the native fluid, the hyaluronic, uh, yeah, right. And and so, you know, I think when that first came out, it, it seemed like it was uh, at least going to try to help bridge that window. Uh, you know, over the past 10, 15 years, I would say studies have, you know, have shown that sometimes helpful, sometimes not, mm-hmm. kind of similar to how steroids have been, mm-hmm. you know. And so now as things have progressed, you know, I think we're starting to get a little bit more options, right? Right. Um, and so, uh, Dr. Grau, if you'd be so uh, pleasant to be able to, to help us with this, if you know, let us know some of those newer options uh, and then kind of some of the ways that we can incorporate those into patient care. Yeah. And so um, regenerative medicine, really exciting. What does it really mean? Um, in general, it's, I would say, there's, um, you know, we in broad strokes, we say uh, stem cell therapy. Uh, well, there's PRP, and then there's uh, bone marrow aspirate. I think those are the two big categories. Um, and and so I'll start with PRP. Um, PRP stands for platelet-rich plasma. What is it really? Well, uh, if you break down your blood into uh, several different components, uh, platelets are one of them. There's platelets, there's white blood cells, which technically they fight infection, and there's red blood cells, and they carry oxygen around. Um, and then there's um, yeah, there's a, a few different molecules left in the in the blood, but those are the big big hitters there. Well, what platelet-rich plasma is, and plasma, by the way, is um, uh, 
is a part of your uh, is a part of your blood as well. Um, now, what platelet-rich plasma is is essentially this: we we found that the platelets um, their main function is to to create clots and to stop bleeding, but they also happen to carry a lot of good chemical messages with healing factors. And so let's say what happens, you know, let's figure out what happens when you when you hurt yourself. Well, there's an inflammatory um, cascade or process that your body uses to heal itself, which is a little counterintuitive, probably what the layman person might think. Well, you know, I thought inflammation was bad. We have all these medicines, anti-inflammatories, and naproxen lead to kind of um, to limit that inflammatory process. And now we're doing these gluten-free diets and um, these non-inflammatory food processes. But the truth of the matter is your body needs um, some type of inflammatory process um, for healing as well because it brings in the inflammatory process brings in a lot of cells that do the grunt work that do the healing and um, those cells are attracted by chemical messengers and growth factors Um, and so we found that those growth factors those healing factors those platelets carry a lot of those and so the idea was well maybe if we can um, concentrate those platelets and inject them back into an area that we think maybe this you know this we can uh, accelerate the healing or this area of our body didn't quite heal properly we inject it back in and maybe we can um, hasten the healing process or regenerate the healing process to maybe finish the job that was originally started that didn't get finished and so that's the idea and so how do you you get platelet um, rich plasma well it's actually quite simple so um, we bring a patient in, um, and it's just like a regular blood draw when you go get your um, yearly physical. Uh, come in, and we draw about 15 milliliters, uh, 15 cc's of, of your own blood, anywhere from 50 to over 100 cc's, depending on what type of procedure is getting done. Um, and we take that and uh, blood, and we put it into something, a, a machine called a centrifuge. A uh, centrifuge is a machine that just... Um, separates the components of your blood based on how heavy um, those components are. If a platelets are a little bit lighter, they stay higher up into the component after the spin. Blood, uh, red bloods are bigger and heavier, they, they get pushed down. Um, and so what happens is you spin that for a few minutes and now, voila, you got an upper portion filled, full, full of platelets and uh, separate from white blood cells to a degree and from the red blood cells. So you just take out the platelet portion of it and you inject that back in. Okay, and so there's your, so you separate it, you take it out, and um, you have your platelet-rich plasma. Um, and then, again, you can inject that back in. Now, how's that different from, let's say, bone marrow aspirate? That's a little bit more, a little bit more um, involved. It's a little bit more invasive and a little bit more than just drawing some blood. How's that work? Well, um, there's different ways. Bone marrow, you can, is, is, um, it's something that you can find in different parts of your body. Um, I think from... Um, my experience where people are getting bone marrow uh, from is the hip, um, the sac- uh, posterior superior um, iliac spine is a good entry point and going into the pelvis. Um, typically, I think we, in medicine, we've known that for bone marrow transplants for cancer patients and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, you could get it from the tibia, which is the lower end of the uh, the leg, that bone there, and a couple other places. But um, from my experience, um, the most successful bone marrow has been extracted from the pelvis. And how do you get there? Well, you got to take a needle and uh, get to burrow your way into the to the to the pelvis where that bone marrow is. And the reason the bone marrow is so um, sought after, and the idea is, well, the bone marrow has cells, what we call progenitor cells, and and those cells technically, well, what what we think, what we feel is that they have an ability to, um, if you put the correct 
put them into the correct environment or infrastructure, they'll morph into um, different types of cells. So they have the ability to kind of regenerate or, and make themselves into um, whatever type of uh, cells the environment requires. And so um, that's the theory. I don't know how much of that's been proven to a, a legitimate degree, but they have the progenitor cells in addition to what the platelets have, growth factors and, and such. And so that's the lure of bone marrow. Obviously, that's more uh, involved, but those are the, that's, I guess, the overall idea between PRP and bone marrow. Um, and we can talk about the different uses of those now and let's yeah no I think that'd be a great thing right I think that makes the theory of it make sense you know we kind of understand okay the platelets yep uh, we're going to try to call the the inflammatory cascade and get the healing going bone marrow obviously widely used in medicine a lot in hematology and oncology um, but it makes sense that you know the bone marrow is a place where we can find those progenitor cells um, but now you know trying to take that from the the theory of what's going on to Okay, what? How have we actually been using it? You know, where, whatever, what have we been able to to see? Generally speaking, yeah. in yeah. in the public, and you know, especially kind of in these realms where you know there are a lot of uh, people using stem cells and, and PRP in different realms. Yeah. Um, you know, not just musculoskeletal, which is obviously what we're focusing on, um, but you know, cosmetic and all the all the right, light. Right, and vampire facials. We've heard of those, right? <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. Uh, don't they didn't give the best uh, name for, for yeah. PRP for sure? But you know, obviously the the musculoskeletal realm has been growing rapidly over the past probably almost decade yeah. at this point oh yeah, yeah all, all kinds of different uses in our in you know in our case we'll keep it to what we deal with uh musculoskeletal and uh and joints so what is the research really shown is it is this better than what's out there already and and um and and thankfully it has um there's there's quite a bit of research it's growing and it's already there that's showing that um the PRP and um, bone marrow aspirate are superior to um, steroids for uh, functional return and um, longevity of how long that treatment actually lasts. There's articles out there for um, intraarticular knee injections that say it's better than steroid um, head-to-head and it's better than hyaluronic acid. Uh, again, head-to-head. Um, and uh, I think people are now, uh, including myself, um, you know, we're injecting these into knees in lieu of steroid uh, injections. Uh, what other um, uh, uh, possible sites in the body? Well, if you figure uh, joints are the same anywhere they go, theoretically, you can extrapolate that and inject anywhere. But where are we looking at the research? And the research that I've seen, um, knees, hips have shown the same, that um, in particular that bone marrow aspirate and PRP being superior to um, to intraarticular injections for um, steroid. They both demonstrate that they're safe and superior. Um, the other area, which is kind of exciting for us in PM&R, but tendinopathies, yeah. right? Lateral epicondylitis, ten, you know, uh, and medial epicondylitis, ten, tennis, and golfer's elbow, uh, respectively. Um, so um, those types of injuries, musculoskeletal injuries, which are really tough. Those things, you just don't get better. You try physical therapy, you tried bracing, you tried um, and steroid injections, and maybe they lasted a couple of weeks, a few couple of months, and then they came back, and you think, well, what do I do now? And then, um, and really, there's been a void there. And so this is where I think 
there is a room for PRP. And thankfully, Achilles tendonitis is another big one. I remember I did a, a talk in, um, oh gosh, in residency about PRP. And I remember thinking uh, epicondylitis and, PR, and Achilles tendonitis, yeah. plantar fasciitis, yeah. these soft tissue injuries. They already had research back then yeah. on it. And, and it's just grown since there, yeah. uh, since then. Gluteal yeah. tendinopathy. Sorry, go ahead. You want yeah, to Yeah, no, the, I, I, I agree. The tendinopathies, I think, are, are very... Uh, exciting portion of it because there's not yeah, you know not outside much. of physical therapy yeah. there's not a lot of other good data right I mean oh, yeah. standard of care is uh, steroid injections and I think most people would appreciate that you know if you do a gluteal tendon uh, steroid injection the likelihood is patient's going to get a few weeks of relief right yeah um, you know surgeries for most of those tendinopathies aren't that great they're usually a debridement and yeah. you know essentially trying to do basically the same thing, right? Where they're yeah. they're going in, they're muck, they're mucking up the area, so yeah, that way yeah. you can try to get some of that healing going on. Okay, you know, very rarely for you know tennis elbow or for gluteal tendinopathy are they going to you know actually do anything like an anchor to reattach tendons no, like they right. do for rotator cuff, yeah. right? And so there aren't that great of options, options for yeah. those. And I so mean, now to get data for for, for these, rich plasma. It's pretty it's exciting, exciting for the medical for profession. Yeah, and for the patients as well. I mean, listen, we, we've both been there. We've done, I've done injections. I've had success with steroids. Yeah. Um, I recently did one on a on a, a 75-year-old man. He had a little lateral apocondylitis and put a little steroid, peppered it in there. No problem. Got better. But what do you do with those young patients that don't get better or the older patients that don't get better? So this is where that where the, the, the PRP and the, the um, you know, even bone marrow aspirates really um, provide, provide another option for us for long-term yep. um, treatment. And so let's talk about, well, you know, acute versus chronic and where, where you know, where is that? And, and uh, where is that? Where do PRP and bone marrow play into that? And I would say, I think the research is, um, I would say there's a little bit more optimism for, for more acute injuries, subacute injuries. Um, and they, they can be months long. Technically, we called it earlier three months or longer as a chronic. But, uh, you know, I think the, um, I'll give you an example. I had uh, a young patient, 35-year-old guy, come in, and uh, um, he was an avid runner. I think uh, he stepped wrong and, and, and um, hit an SI joint mm-hmm. issue or maybe a sprain or, um, or uh, of the ligament there. I think someone like him would be, you know, if he just wasn't getting better after six weeks, that's somebody I, I, I would definitely consider a PRP on something a little bit more acute. Um, but now having said that, there's definitely a, um, there's definitely a role for the older patients with chronic need a degenerative yeah. arthritis. And so let's talk about that. What does degeneration mean? What does arthritis mean? Well, really, that's just, you know, truthfully, that's just aging. That's what happens. I tell my patients, your, your body is not like, unlike anything else in the world. If you use it, you, you will, it will wear out. It's not any different from the car parts. It's not different, you know, the tread on your tires, the bottom of your shoes. If you use it, it wears out. And that's what we call arthritis. That's what we call degenerative uh, disease. And and it sounds scary, but that's really what it is, is aging. And, and so if you put it in that context, well, there's no cure for, the, for that. You know, there's no cure for aging. And, uh, you know, patients ask me, well, is there any way to stop it? And I say, well, the only way to stop it is pretty morbid, you know, that's <laughs> to die. But, uh, but. Um, so, okay, what do you do for those arthritic knees and um, hips and joints and shoulders? Well, um, when steroid injections just aren't giving you long, long-term treatment you're looking for, that's where PRP comes in and, and um, hopefully gives you some long-term relief. Um, and, and, you know, going a little bit deeper, well, the next question would be, well, how, how efficacious is this? Um, do I need another injection? How long does it last? And truthfully, the studies, now the studies 
are lacking in one way. They're showing that they're better for, you know, the studies, the way they work is they follow up with patients at three weeks, six weeks, six months, a year. But beyond that, they typically don't follow. You don't know how long um, these treatment options are going to last. Steroids are definitely temporary. I tell my patients, one, listen, they're fickle. They're not guaranteed to work. If they do work, I don't know how long they're going to last. If they do la- if they do give work, I don't know you're gonna, if you're going to get 1% relief or 100%. And with PRP, I would guess, you know, I could, I could say that I'm a little bit more confident, but similar uh, applies. I just don't know how long it's going to last. You might need an injection in the future. Um, and also, it's, it, this realm is so new, the regenerative medicine realm is so new, there's there very little standard mm-hmm. of, of injectate material. So what I mean by that is there's some people who put some white blood cells in there that, that are involved in the inflammatory process, um, depending on what what body structure you're going after. Are you going into a joint? Are you going to soft tissue? And they come up with different concoctions so these centrifuge machines can kind of give you um, uh, tailored amounts of how much you want of each. And um, But the truth of the matter is there's no study out there that says, hey, this is the exact amount you should put in. This is how many times you should do an injection, uh, you know, one versus once a week for three weeks or once every month. There's, some, there's no standard out there with regards to that. So what I've been doing with my patients is, uh, you know, let's try, let's try one and see how you do with that. And if we have to come back and do another, fine, we can do that. Um, yeah, I think that's always the, the challenge with kind of new, newer technology and new treatments, right? Because, you know, the science is still catching up. I yeah. mean, a lot of the ability to separate uh, the cells out so finely with the centrifuge mm-hmm. to be able to have... Uh, very precise levels of, of platelets of white blood cells mm-hmm. uh, is is relatively new, right? That technology is continuing to evolve, evolve and we're yeah. continuing to learn it. Yep. And so obviously it takes pretty significant amount of time for, for science to be able to catch up and say, okay, we've now we've kind of looked at all of this the right way. Right. You know, but I, I think regardless, you know, we, we've known for a long time that, you know, there are these patients, you know, I, I think the, the perfect example is that, 40 to 50 year old patient right mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm. you know the I, I think a lot of the orthopedic literature calls it the arthritis gap you know these patients that they've developed arthritis but yeah. we know darn well that in an ideal world we don't want them getting a joint replacement, replacement until right, they're in their young, 60s yeah. right. now we have 10 or 15 years that we need to figure out how to keep them functional because you know worse than replacing a joint too soon mm-hmm. is letting a person just stop doing the activities right. that they want to live, Become right? less functional. Exactly. Poor quality of life. And that's the big, you know, as physicians, we get it for the patients. You know, you're, you're 50. You're not, you're not 80 years old. You're not even, you know, you're not at the end of your life. Um, well, and, and the amazing thing is going to be by the time we get there, the way the science is going, yeah. 80 is probably going to be a little bit closer right. to 50. Yeah, than, no, than as soon as I said that, I, right? I thought like, to myself, I should, you know, 80 is 80 yeah. not the end of your life either. So if you're listening on 80, you're 85 <laughs> years old. You're not at the end of your well, life. But, well, but I mean, that plays into, you know, we've been using the 60s, 65, and we right. think that we have 20, 25 years for these joints. But right. if life expectancy for a woman is now 86 or 87 years old, mm-hmm. you know, over the next decade or two, that's probably going to push closer to 90. Yeah. Now, now we're talking about an even larger arthritis gap, right? Where now right. you're talking, people starting to develop these symptoms in their 40s. Now we're going to ask them to wait, what, maybe till 70 at some point? Right. And there's a large window of time that people are going to have to be it's waiting and trying to figure ask. out how to... Yeah how to control things and you know hopefully the technology for 
for joints gets better, where the revisions become significantly more successful. Right. right. But at at this point, you know, that's not really where where things we are. are. Right. And and, so. and 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 so and I wanted to cover a topic really briefly. Um, I think that's a practical uh, question for patients. So how is this different from steroid? Um, and as we try to provide a, an alternative to the to the to the surgeries and such. Well, here's what steroids. Steroids is an anti-inflammatory. It's in the name, anti-inflammatory. And so you're um, inhibiting that cascade, the inflammatory cascade. And so you think, well, earlier I said, you know, sometimes we need that as a healing process. And isn't that a bad thing to put steroid in your body? Well, you know, not necessarily. And, and, and but that's a great, it's a great, it's a great question um, to ask. Um, if, if an inflammatory process is needed for healing, we put steroid in there, um, is that a is is that a bad thing? Should we stop doing that? And the answer to that is not necessarily. Sometimes our our body gets overzealous, and you got an inflammatory cascade that's actually um, uh, you're causing more harm than good. Then you know, okay, steroids a not a bad option. So it's a case by case basis. Now, all right, well, how's PRP different, and how's bone marrow aspirin different? Well, it's different in that again, it. Um, it's trying to promote healing. It's trying to promote that inflammatory process, bring that back in. I touched on it earlier, but I wanted to kind of put it side by side uh, for, to steroid. And you're kind of, you're really, you're, you're encouraging that cascade. The PRP, those cells are, are recruiting factors, uh, growth factors, and releasing growth factors and, and attracting other cells to come in, um, um, so to speak, like the contractors, and come in and build. And, and that's what you're doing with PRP and bone marrow aspirin. So the, the idea is to heal um, and to reorganize. And, that, and that's the, the, the side-by-side difference. There are two very different mechanisms of the theory behind the healing uh, and the treatment and making you feel better. And, and going back to your point, kind of circling back, that arthritis gap in between, um, we've been filling that with steroids. Um, and that's worked great for some. And then I'm sure there's plenty of patients that if you're out there listening, you're probably thinking this is going to ring true with you as well. They worked great for a while. Mm-hmm. And then they started to get less and less effective, what we call diminishing returns. Yep. And so um, that's why this is such an important and uh, exciting uh, um, topic. And that's regenerative medicine I'm talking about, namely, um, to help fill that void, that arthritis gap. It, yeah, know, I think that's I think that's the the gist of it, right? We're we're looking for more options, right? More ways oh, yeah. of being able to help, you know. And like you said, steroids are not a bad thing. Steroids have been helpful for a lot of patients, and they still continue to be helpful for a lot of patients. But yeah. there are other patients that that stop responding, they that that aren't getting as much relief from him. And this is just another tool that we have that's to exactly be able right. to just yeah. help patients to live the best lives possible, to improve improve their quality of life, and just keep doing the things that make them happy. Uh, exactly right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you helping out today and kind of walking us through all of this regenerative medicine. You know, it's exciting stuff. It's definitely, you know, a, a, a burgeoning field, uh, but also one that is just super important. Hopefully that we're going to continue to develop uh, science and evidence for over time. Well, yeah, and I appreciate the chance to be on, uh, you know, on your podcast, on our pat podcast, and uh, I certainly had a good time. Hopefully this has been useful for, for people who are listening um, and it'll help uh, in your own treatment decisions. All right, guys. Uh, As always, uh, thanks for listening. Um, This is not meant to be uh, medical advice. This is only for education and entertainment purposes. Uh, If this seems like it might be something you're interested in, by all means, please talk to your healthcare provider uh, and get more information. And we will talk to you guys soon.